Mobile Mongo Podcast. I'm your host, Janae Muha. One of my last stops on my epic road trip happened to be Minneapolis, Minnesota, where a food revolution has been taking place for at least the last decade. In this episode, I chat with Mike Phillips, owner and operator of Red Table Meats, about the intricacies of opening a cured meat business. Spoiler alert, it's a lot. We discuss quality and flavor, having pride on your products, and the effects of consolidation in the meat world leading to the system collapses we've seen over the last two years during COVID. Even as someone that has been in the industry for as long as I have, it's only been the last couple of years that I've dug into really learning more about charcuterie, and I still have much to learn. With the popularity rise of meat and cheese plates during COVID, what better time to dig into the finer details of how that product gets from field to a beautiful board? Let's dig in with Mike. I'm Mike Phillips, and uh, I own and operate Red Table Meat Company uh, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, I have been involved in the food world since 19, really since 1985, when I left uh, my little town of Royal, Iowa, and moved to the big, the big city, and went to school and worked in the um, worked in the cafeteria at school, and then got out of school, and then immediately got a job dishwashing and worked my way up to chef and then was a chef in the Twin Cities for like 25 years and then opened this. Basically, that's the that's the real short story of it all. All right. So can you tell us about Red Table? Like what inspired you to start this company? Uh, that there's a lot there. <laughs> um, I was a chef at the time and I was doing all of this stuff in the restaurant and thinking, um, I was thinking that it could be done on a larger scale for sure. And why wouldn't we be doing that? And at the same time, um, I had done a bit of traveling, uh, and mostly to, to Europe, you know, some Central America stuff, but the stuff in Europe impressed upon me. Um, I was working with a bunch of small farmers at the time and making various things. And especially when I was in um, Italy and Spain and France, what struck me so much um, was the pride that everyone had in their food. So you go to any little place that you were. Um, uh, like I spent, at different times, I spent a couple of weeks in Provence. Uh, I had a friend who ran bike tours. And so I would go along and cook and I would go to the market every day and get food and sort of stuff and then cook for everyone and then ride my bike every day. And um, just getting to know the people at the market and all of their pride and the, the food from that, you know, the market would move every day to a small town nearby and every, it wouldn't change necessarily, except for there might be a different producer from that town that day at the market and all the soft ripened raw milk cheeses and just incredible stuff. And all the, all the salami that you could want to try in the world. But there it seemed like, um, you know, I, I know people are, 
nuts about sports there too, but they're nuts about their food in the same way that they're nuts about sports. Like, you know, there'll be bar fights about who's whatever is better, you know, who's, (laughs) it's crazy. Like maybe it's just a slight change in how someone makes their ragu, but it's just really different. And at the same time, being in the U.S. and um, trying to work on food system, and I saw, to, to me, it seemed apparent that what was missing in our food system and that let it go astray to the point of being really ineffectual and really harmful and really extractive in lots of different ways, um, the thing that was missing was that pride piece that people were really prideful. And, and as I got into making stuff more and more, um, you know, especially when I waded into the world of regulations with the USDA, then I really understood that that pride point, um, you know, folks in Europe and little places like that, that the food was so important to them that their, their, uh, that pride pushed how regulation works because they would make sure the regulators did. We use this wood bowl for this thing here and it has always been that way. And it's going to remain that way because we want it that way. That's what we like. We think it's really great. We're super prideful of it in our region. And if you're going to be our elected official, you're going to make sure that the regulators do it that way. In the U.S., it's more about, oh, let's just make food safe, which meant let's make food sterile. And the pride, you know, any time I've talked to any officials about pride, the quality and and anything like that just goes out the window. It's all about food safety. So, and, and it's not that food safety isn't important and it's not that in Europe, they don't have to deal with some of the same sort of things. It's just that the pride part kept it intact. So then it was like, well, what do I do to try to help with that pride? I'm like, well, I, I know how to do this, this curing meat thing. And I'm pretty sure we've got really great pigs in the Midwest. Because I'm seeing chefs take those pigs out to California or out to the East Coast and make this cured product with it. Um, I'm like, why, why doesn't it stay here? And why don't we do the same thing and then create that pride and hopefully help heal the system? That was it. That's the long and short of it, right? Yeah, that's, I mean, it sounds great. I think that that's an important thing to think about too is like, it's not just about food safety. It's also about making something delicious and putting your pride, your pride and your passion into something to make it be delicious. Um, so you said you started curing meats when you were a chef. Like, how did you go about, how did you go about learning how to do that? Like, were you just doing it at home? Like, how did you go about that? Well, for a while there was, it was really shooting in the dark, man. Cause you know, there was nobody to teach anybody about any of it, unless you could somehow make your way to Europe, I suppose. Um, But then um, I remember being at one of my distributors uh, in, I think it was like 98 or 99. And I'd been messing around with some curing and curing some prosciuttos in the basement of a restaurant that I had. And, 
there was a guy named Francois Vecchio working for Columbus Meats, and he was in town at this distributors just giving a talk on cured meat. And so I went and he, I don't know, he gave a two hour plus talk on cured meat and sliced some stuff. And um, I was totally that stalker in the back, standing in the back waiting for everyone to leave till I could attack. And once, uh, once everybody left and I started talking to Francois and I said, well, I'm interested in these cured meat things. And he, he saw a book of um, Bruce Adela's uh, a sausage book. And he's like, well, you should read that. And I'm like, no, I have that book. That's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for this and this. And, and in it, I could see it click in his head like, oh, you're interested in dry cured meats and in the real stuff. And um, I was such a geek at that point and still am. I'm still a geek. <laughs> um, I had a couple of my prosciutto in the car because I thought, well, maybe he'll take a look at them. And we were talking and telling him what I do. And he was like, well, it's too bad I can't see him. I'm like, well, just happens that I have one in the car. And he's like, well, go get it. And then, and then it was just kind of on. He, he um, understood that I was pretty serious about trying to figure this out. And he was very generous with his knowledge. And it started a 25-year year relationship that has been fantastic. So um, he's taught me a lot, for sure. He's probably responsible for 80% of the sort of charcuterie revolution in the U.S., I would say. I mean, that's great. I feel like, you know, one person giving their knowledge can also boost an entire industry. <laughs> it sounds like, and I mean, it works in the cheese industry too. So it's, yes. it's, uh, you know, it's good when people share their knowledge. Yeah. It's helpful. Do you think that growing up in Iowa had anything to do with your interest in meats? <laughs> Cause you know, Iowa does have more pigs than people. So in, in a, yeah not necessarily the cured meat part. I was always interested in food, but what was more interesting to me was, um, I think it just helped me with my desire to work with smaller farmers because it was a, I lived in a farm community. It was a town of 400 people, tiny little town. I had 28 people in my graduating high school class and I was the townie and the rest of the kids were farm kids. And I worked for farmers and I, they, they were all my friends. And this was, I, I graduated high school in 85. So, you know, basically those formative years of teenager, I watched all these friends go through uh, the farm crisis in the US. I watched them move from small, um, diversified, sustainable family farms into large, corporate, larger and larger corporate farms to the point of a lot of people not farming anymore um, and, and having to look for other jobs and figure out other ways to, to exist in, in a rural economy. And it, it was odd. I just rode my bike through Iowa a few weeks ago. Um, and it, it's, it's crazy, the state that that place is in the industrial agriculture machine that exists there and where people eat and how people eat there instead of that land sustaining everybody 
I kid you not, everyone eats at the gas station. It's the, it's just the weirdest thing ever. It's like this place used to be, you know, you could go to the cafe in town and get food that was grown locally there. And, and there's no cafes in town anymore. It's a little like Casey's or quick trip or whatever that, that, you know, people go in there and get burgers and bad fried reheated food for lunch and dinner. And that's, that's how rural America exists at this point. It's like, wow. That is, I mean, I knew, I knew it existed on some level for sure, but it was, a, again, a, a refreshing shock, I guess, to, to see all of it. So what year did you open Red Table? 2014. I mean, we started, I left the restaurant that I was at in 2010, and um that's when I met my partner, Kieran, and we started working on this and he had some Irish pubs in town and uh, we started incubating this and then found space and got it built out and by, you know, work with the USDA and all that by 2014, we were producing product that we could sell that fall. Um, speaking of the USDA, I, you know, the cheese world is a very regulated industry, but I, obviously the cured meat world is a much bigger regulated industry. So can you kind of talk us through like what it takes to even start a company like that? Well, I'm, I think it takes different things for different people. And when you work with the USDA, um, and we work with the USDA because we want to cross state lines. And if you're producing meat in the United States and you want to cross state lines, that's what you have to do. Um, they, if you are deemed a grant of inspection, they give you 40 hours of inspection free a week, meaning that the taxpayer pays for a person to be at your plant every day for some period of time during those 40 hours a week. So, um, you have posted hours that you're open and uh, that's what they do. The bigger thing for us was validation. So you, you obviously have to have a HACCP plan um, for food safety, but that plan has to be validated somehow. And it's a, it can be a ton of work and it was a ton of work. Um, we got really fortunate that um, some, some serendipity happened for us. There was, um, well, there is for, for small and very small plants, there is help with validation through land grant universities, which the university of Minnesota is. So the USDA has that program through land grant universities to help small, very small plants with their validation. So I reach out to the extension professor there. She's like, yeah, that's what we do. Let's go for it. And so that relationship was three years before we ever opened that we were at a table talking about what we're doing and how we're doing it. And we got to the table with the USDA. I'd been at the table with them for a couple of years as well, saying this is what we want to do and this is how we want to do it. And um, we got to the table and had the place built out and the USDA looked at us and said, no, uh, you can't do it uh, unless you have some further validation. Um, and essentially they got us to, we, we basically had to do validation studies on all of our products to make sure that it did what 
everybody wants it to do. So we took uh, a surrogate of salmonella and showed that we got a five log reduction through our process of salmonella with everything. And that took um, anywhere from the, the shortest process was one week and the longest process was a year. And that's how long the validation study took was all of that time. And we were able to produce products during that. And some products were able to come out when we showed that they were validated. But by the end of it, we had everything validated and um, we have a very comprehensive uh, HACCP system under that validation to make it all work. Um, luckily, uh, the, that professor at the University of Minnesota said, I'll do it for you. I'll do all of that validation work um, if you can find me an assistant. And I happened to know a friend of mine who was a butcher and was also um, entering the master's program for his food, food microbiology at the University of Minnesota. I'm like, hey, you want a job and uh, uh, you want to get a master's thesis? And it, I mean, it was perfect. So he came in and he butchered and he worked with us, but he also did all of the legwork, all of the lab work at the same time. And then he got a master's thesis out of it, which is published somewhere, anybody can see it. And we got a validation study. So we were quoted by a number of independent labs, you know, probably 15 grand per product to do a validation study. And we were looking at at least 30 products out of the gate. So, I mean, the math on it was like, no way we're gonna pay for it. So we got super lucky. And, and I think that, you know, when I talk to other folks who are starting plants or thinking about it, I'm like, please reach out to a land grant university. Here's how we did it. I'm sure that that could happen at any other land grant university if you talk to them. Yeah, like I would have never even thought that. I mean, obviously I'm not trying to start a meat plant, but, <laughs> yeah. but like it, that's just something that you don't think about in terms of like, the the roadblocks of opening something like that yeah it's it's huge and there isn't a lot of information share out there at this point in the meat world because it's super competitive and um, i think we'll see more and more of that in the next five or ten years now that everybody there's more and more charcuterie sort of operations and more and more people uh, you know I always say it, it's like everything with the cheese world. Probably 25 years ago, the cheese world was a little more competitive. Now everybody's like, let's help each other and figure it out. Um, I think the meat world is a few way, years away from, let's help each other and figure it out, but we're closer for sure. Right. So what makes Red Table different than other salam charcuterie companies? Um, yeah, I mean, I hope it's quality. We, we focus on what we learned from, from my mentor, which was um, young, fresh salami. Uh, so salami, like any product, like a cheese or a wine or anything, has a bell curve of when it's good. And it's not that it goes bad as it ages, but there's a peak when it's really at its best. And then it sort of goes downhill. Um, 
which has been a huge education piece for us. I can't tell you how many times I've sent out a piece of large caliber salami that I'm like, this is perfect. This is exactly, and, and I get a call, hey, this is not cured. This, is, this isn't ready to go. And I'm like, no, 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 this is ready to go. It's not over dried. Um, in that old adage, you should cut, you know, your salami with a really sharp knife and as thin as possible. It's like not, no, absolutely not. Uh, if you're in Italy and Spain and France and you, especially Italy, you know, when you would taste really good salami, it was always cut really thick and maybe even in chunks and it was fantastic. And, um, I always say that the best salami I ever had was at Francois's house. He lived in Alaska for a while and I would go up there and work with him. And he cut me a piece of salami one day and it was, it was like a, a good half inch thick. And I ate it and I, I was just flabbergasted. I'm like, what is this? And how do I make it? And right away he was like, oh, you can't make that. That's not gonna happen here in the US. And I'm like, why? And he's like, well, it's at, you know, the water activity is too high. And the pH isn't going to work, but he's like, it's, it's a two week old small caliber salami. And I'm like, that is the best thing I've ever had. He's like, yeah, you got to shoot for that. That's what you have to try for. And I'm like, okay, sold. So I think that's what we continually try for. It's super hard in uh, the distribution world that we work in to make sure that those, uh, we have shorter best buy dates on everything than uh, most out there and it's for a reason we want to try to make sure that people have that experience of young fresh salami we don't slice and aren't going to jump into that game that is where i i mean just it's like cut and wrap you know it's like well that just degrades the product right away not only does it degrade the product but then you slice it and you put it in plastic and then you have a bunch of plastic that has to go in the landfill again. So why not just leave it in its natural state and go to a counter and get it sliced by somebody who knows what they're doing there. That's the difference, I guess. That's. I like, I mean, I think that there's room for both in the industry and I think both are necessary and it's, you know, we need, we need stuff that people can just buy when they want something really quick and easy, but we also need something that people can have that experience of, going to a, a shop and getting someone to slice them really nicely. Yeah. I think both are just super important. I agree. And there, there's plenty of that other stuff out there and we don't need to jump into that game. And I'm just fine with that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about the last uh, two years that we're looking at uh, with COVID. How has that affected uh, Red Table? Well, for sure. Uh, huge. I mean, a number of things. So uh, we lost a good 80%, 90% of our business immediately um, when lockdown started to happen. And that, I get it. That's, that's fine. A lot of the distributors that we work with uh, primarily worked with restaurants. So restaurants are closed. That's the way it goes. Um, and then we started to see people pivot and figure out some different avenues and a little more grocery business. We started selling online, which we hadn't really done before. Um, 
had to lay everybody off for about three months and did it all myself for three months, which was a juggle for a while, but still had a little bit of downtime and um, was nice to, I felt like it was like this great opportunity for everybody to just stop, rethink and reset and figure out what's important and what's not. And um, it, it was always so hard for me to hear people say, let's get back to normal. And it's like, I don't think normal was working really personally. So let's figure out what the good change is and try to work towards that. Um, so then we started a, a custom pig program so you could buy a pig from a farmer and uh, give it to us and we would do everything that we do with it. Um, just like you would buy a pig and have it chopped up and put it in your freezer, we would cure everything and you would have all dry cured product to, you know, which would take anywhere from like I was saying, we have, we've been, you know, basically delivering those products to people right away they get a, a, a delivery and then in a month they get a delivery and then in three months they get a delivery and then it's usually about a year they get their last delivery which is kind of cool it's got a, this long life um, for us it also meant that it uh, decreased a lot of our risk we don't have to own the meat um, we just do a service to it and I th it made me realize that really the opportunities for us are all about collaboration. Um, so we did that for, we did that for a couple of retail spots. And that's my hope is that we keep going on that program, doing that for folks who are, who, who have the ability, you know, who have maybe some, some cash flow to buy some pigs and then we can co-brand a product with them. We did it for, um, Market Hall out in the Bay. We did it with Looks Market in Sioux Falls. Um, I think there's some other folks who are super interested in it. Uh, we'll see what happens, but it's it's an interesting way to approach it. And it's just way more fun to me if I get to work with somebody else who's creative and is super stoked about a different idea than, um, it's more fun than just like, these are our products and this is what we have to sell, let's go. Uh, I also think that, you know, for us, COVID changed the ball game in how we market. Um, most of our marketing met me hitting the road and traveling and being in a market and going out to see people and, and having conversations and tasting stuff, <laughs> I just went away. Yeah, I had a I had like three days before we entered lockdown. I was still slated for a trip that was two and a half weeks in the southeast, going to everywhere like D.C., Charleston, Atlanta, just like everywhere in the south southeast. I should say, not southwest. And um, three days before, it was like, yeah, can't do that. No one wants to see you. The, the, I talked to one of the salespeople, and they're like nobody wants to ride with you and nobody wants to see you right now. I'm like, Ooh, that changes everything. And it's stayed the same. I mean, I'll go out for CMI next week and that will be the only travel that I'll do this year. And the only thing that I've really done since a small food show in 2020, 
crazy. Really different for us. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely uh, the aspect of the road warrior that has just kind of gone to the wayside. And I think that a lot of people are now like, wow, I get to spend more time with my family and I can do this stuff on Zoom and I don't need to be like out there all the time. I miss it, though. It's I like that was one of the best parts of the job to me is going out and meeting people in the market and talking about the product. Uh, I mean, it was super fun. If you show up with really good salami, everybody's like, I'm glad to see you. It's never like, Oh, get out of here. So I missed that part. I mean, there's definitely something to be said for connections and connecting on a very personal level. But I also think that there's a lot of room for um, doing stuff to where you have more of a work-life balance to where you're not just on the road all the time. Yeah. You were on the road all the time, weren't you? For a while. Yes, I was. <laughs> and like, it's fine. I, I enjoyed that time, but I only had to do it for like a year. And I know people who've been doing it for multiple years. And so that's pretty draining on your time and your family and goals in your own personal life so 100 percent. and 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 what what a perfect opportunity for us to rethink all of that i mean i'm just i don't i'm happy the fancy food shows get canceled because i'm like what does that do for anyone it's like the big pink elephant in the room that everybody's like oh yeah we got to go do fancy food and you're like why (laughs) it costs so much money to do it and does it do anything for anyone? It's one of those weird things. It's like, um, maybe we could do something else. Yeah, it's hard to it's hard to quantify the return on investment with those things. Because it feels like you need to be there because that's where everybody is. But at the same time, you're like spending so much money to be there. It's, it's, a, it's an endless cycle with that one. <laughs> it is. It's crazy. And, and I'm like, yeah, I super happy that that goes away who needs that i'd rather go honestly just you know spend a week in some market go to some places take a bicycle with me go on some bike rides maybe my family comes with me for some of it because they've done that before we go do some things see some people eat some food it's perfect to me but that's the ideal yes (laughs) it is so uh, supply chain distri- or, uh, disruptions have been a huge topic for all food stuff. How has that affected you? Not bad. Um, I mean, we had, it was obviously when, um, obviously when the meat industry was at the height of, of having most of its problems, we weren't doing much at all. So it didn't affect us much in that way. We haven't seen a huge, other than lead time for spices that we get, it hasn't been much of anything for us. Uh, although um, the caveat being small uh, slaughter facilities are super booked. So custom pig wise, um, you know, getting, getting slaughter dates, the farmers getting slaughter dates is really tough at this point. And, and that's all about, to, to me, you know, sort of people getting interested in local meat again after 
um, kind of pushing it away for the last 20 years and lots of local um, processing facilities going out of business because the economics don't work. Um, and then all of a sudden everybody being interested in it again or not being able to get slaughter somewhere else. So it's like all these little places are just really, really overtaxed all of a sudden. And um, nobody can get their animals slaughtered. It's part of the pendulum swing, you, you know, in that industry basically. Otherwise I haven't seen necessarily any other supply issues, just delivery issues. You know, the, the delivery, FedEx, um, UPS, USPS, they're all, you know, maxed to the hilt and all of them have problems getting your product somewhere on time, 100%. Yeah. That's, that is a weekly problem for sure for us. Um, so the slaughter houses, I'm thinking about this in terms of like, is it because they've consolidated to larger, more industrial style farms? So a lot of the smaller houses have closed. And so there's just not as much access for like, say a smaller pig farmer to get to. Yeah. I mean, all of that, you know, so a lot of smaller farmers going away. So less business for smaller processing facilities, which just ended up going out of business. So fewer small processing facilities. And then I would say probably a growth in the last five years of folks raising livestock on some smaller level, looking for good slaughter, not just slaughter, but good slaughter. And, um, you know, that stuff had gone away already. And so uh, definitely the pendulum swing. Um, and, you know, it's a, that's been a, a struggle always. And we've always had a struggle finding good uh, slaughter facilities. Um, and there aren't a whole lot of people, younger generations going, gee, I want to, go slaughter animals, <laughs> you know, it, it's just not something that a bunch of people are getting into. And um, so it's difficult. The economics are difficult. The, the desire to get into that industry in the first place, it's, it's a hard, it's a hard one for sure. Re regardless of the economics, it's just hard to go to work every day, knowing that you're taking the life of an animal every day. Um, and if you can make that, you know, that, get around to like figuring out how to do it right so that you actually honor the animal rather than really screw things up um, is not necessarily there. For some people it is, for some it isn't. So, uh, you know, whether it takes probably funding, once again, um, finding uh, their grants, USDA has grants and um, usually your state department of ag has grants for those types of things. But um, I mean, this is something that I, I, we started sort of a local butcher's guild here in town or, or processor's guild, butcher's guild. And um, 
trying to get grants, if you're a small processor, well, when do you have time to write for a grant? And when do you have time to put all the stuff that they need to, for you to get together for that grant? Um, when can that happen? So if maybe we sort of band together um, and find somebody who's used to grant writing and sort of get them on contract to do grant writing forever. Yeah, this person needs a grant, this person needs a grant and start doing it that way instead of um, trying to tackle it yourself is, is, is one way to look at it. But yeah, I, the other part of grants for us, we've gotten a couple of grants from Minnesota Department of Ag, but they're matching grants and you have to have the cash up front, which is like, well, that's, that's great but you're going to reimburse me on cash that I don't have. I mean, I don't have that cash flow to pull out a hundred thousand dollars to buy a new piece of equipment. I just need somebody to help me buying the piece of equipment. Yeah. And that's very time consuming and it takes a very specific type of language and like yes. who, who knows how to do that besides people who actually write grants. So, yes. <laughs> I mean, when we open my, my sister writes grants for nonprofits. I'm like, Hey, help us out here and write a grant. And she nailed it. So that was really great. But it made me realize that we should probably find somebody like that to write grants for all these small processors. And, and maybe it would, you know, make slaughter more feasible if there were people who were available to help write grants for those things. Yeah. I don't know. How do you choose the farms that you work with? Well, uh, really, we only work with Right now we're working with um, Heritage Berkshire out of Iowa, which is a cooperative of Berkshire farmers. And we like their things. There's no way in the world I could visit every farm that they have because there are quite a few. Um, but the farms that we work with for custom processing and whole pig stuff, they're just people we've known for a long time and have worked with for a long time. So. Our, our, our gold standard folks we've worked with for, I've worked with for over 12 years at this point. Um, I know what to expect. And some other folks that I've met along the way, I've worked with for, you know, somewhere between eight and 10 years. And um, usually it's, uh, usually it's about willingness to um, try different feed regimens. Um, for us uh, and what we do, we like to see pigs fed uh, on a diet of barley, field pea, and small grain, no corn, no soy, which is really difficult to find a farmer who's willing to go down that road. It's definitely more expensive. The pigs gain quite a bit slower and securing the feed is difficult. So usually, the farmers that we end up working with will grow their own because it makes the most sense fiscally and because they just can't source it anywhere else, which is cool. I mean, I love that they do that, but it's also another thing that we try to work on is hooking up, trying to find barley growers who can, you know, supply our pig farmers with that stuff. Um, there's a whole larger system that needs to be put together and, and maybe that's what happens. Red tables getting to a place where I can kind of step away a little bit. And part of what I would love to work on is um, 
developing a larger system of barley fed pigs. It's such a, such a better product for everyone, but the little pieces aren't there that put it all together and finding the connections. Um, it's interesting stuff to me. So we'll see, maybe I'll do that. Maybe I won't. <laughs> I feel like that sounds like the perfect path for you, actually. <laughs> it's the next step, right? So I have a couple of um, kind of quick fire-ish questions. Yeah. Uh, like, what's your ch current cheese crush? Whew. Uh, uh, pecorino. Anything pecorino because um, making lots of uh, guanciale right now. And so making lots of Roman style sauces, uh, amatriciana, it's got to have pecorino on it. So uh, lovely. Pecorino sardo. Yes. Love it. Love yep. it. Uh, favorite pairing? Just across favorite the board. Pairing uh, for me is our ham, the, the royal, um, which is a, a jambon royal and style French ham. So dry cured for about a month and then uh, smoked and cooked uh, and Pleasant Ridge Reserve. It's knockout. Yep. It's pretty heavenly. Yes. <laughs> um, and then a favorite food memory. Oh, I love this one because it's all about place and people and stuff. So um, I remember when I was 13, um, my friends and I rode to this local, we rode our bikes. Um, when I started riding a lot, we rode to this local place that we went swimming um, and we're like, we're going to ride there. And then uh, we brought hot dogs with us and we didn't, we didn't even think about how are we going to cook them or anything like that. And um, I remember like finding a coffee can and somebody just filling it up with water and somebody figuring out how to start a fire and throwing the coffee can on the fire and cooking the hot dogs. And then we just ate them like that, but it was like the best meal ever because of the place and the people and everything about it was, it's still to me like, oh, this is, this is so cool that we just did this, that we could do this. We're so independent all of a sudden. <laughs> I love that. Uh, Cause it's not fancy. It's just in, you know, your intuition and you MacGyvered, you MacGyvered that situation to make the best hot dog on your bike trip. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was definitely nothing fancy. And there was probably a bunch of sand all over it, but it was so good. Um, well, is there anything that we didn't cover about Red Table that you feel like people should know? Hmm. We're in Minneapolis. That's kind of cool. I mean, actually, I think that talking a little bit about the food building is a pretty, that, that whole thing is pretty darn cool. So if you want to just mention that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, uh, so we're in the food building in Northeast Minneapolis, um, along with uh, Cheesemakers Alamar Creamery and uh, Bakersfield Flour and Bread. Uh, Bakersfield is the, um, so we live in the Mill City, Minneapolis Mill City. We were built by General Mills and Pillsbury. These are the companies that made Minneapolis. Um, and just down from us on the river were these giant mills. But funny thing about being in Minneapolis now is that milling is 100% illegal. 
because all of those mills blew up huge fires from flower dust. And so uh, the folks across the hall decided that they wanted to mill again. And oh man, did they have to, it was like jumping through hoops with the USDA. Did they have to jump through hoops to get a variance to mill in the mill city? But they're doing the coolest stuff with, with local grains and uh, naturally leavened bread. Um, so it's this really great um, place to have a sandwich, you know, that fantastic bread. Alamar makes this great soft ripened cheese and salami, and it's really easy to just get it all right here and do it. But there's windows into everything as well. So you can walk in and see absolutely how the sausage is made because that adage of no one wants to see how the sausage is made is so false. Everyone wants to see how the sausage is made. And we knew that. We knew that we needed to make it sort of Willy Wonka-like. Um, and we have uh, this small restaurant in front that sells all of the products and and more. We, we make special stuff for them. And then uh, we have a new partner moving in, uh, a fermentation group called Tres Leches, who do various things. Like they just, my partner also, uh, is running an Irish whiskey company, but Tres Leches just asked us for marrow bones because they're roasting them right now. The femurs and the humerus from the pigs that we had, they're roasting them right now and then they're going to wash the whiskey with this marrow, which is like, okay, awesome. Let's do this stuff. And so I'm looking to them going, what's the next collaboration for the whole building? And uh, my hope is in the next five years, that's what goes on here more is lots of collaborations that would be super unique and that these sorts of things start popping up in other places as well. Um, super fun and cool. It's really cool. I mean, a sandwich, a cheese board, a charcuterie board like everything is right there and i mean it's all made literally in that building and it's perfect so that's all i have for you so thank you for joining me out of your busy schedule thanks for yeah super awesome thanks again mike for getting into the finer details of what it takes to create a delicious cured meat and for always finding new ways to show the pride you have within your craft. This podcast is recorded, produced, and edited by me, Janae Muha. Thank you to Ben Muha for allowing me to use your music. To support the show, please find me on Instagram and Facebook at The Mobile Monger. For cool extras and to financially support the continuation of this podcast, please consider contributing to my Patreon. Thanks for listening, and remember to keep spreading the word of good curd. Thank you.